Welcome to Serve Sustain, the podcast that explores the problems in our food system and the entrepreneurs working to solve them. I'm Liv. And I'm Olivia, the English one. Yes, we have the same name, but hopefully Liv and Olivia and our different accents are distinction enough. Together, we hope to show you that through innovation and determination, we can eat better for ourselves and the planet. What if we told you that Americans toss out 40% of their food every single year? The truth is, as much as we Americans and Brits love to eat, we also love to throw out. Food waste is a problem for a plethora of reasons. Not only does it represent wasted nutrients that could have gone to hungrier mouths, but as the food itself decomposes in a landfill, it actually contributes to climate change. If the world's food waste were its own country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. This has led many socially driven entrepreneurs to ask, how can we take wasted food and make it into something new, something better, something more nutritious? What new products can we make to both feed consumers while lessening their environmental impact? So today, we'd like to introduce you to Caitlin Mogentail, founder of Pulp Pantry. At Pulp Pantry, employees take the pulp left behind from some of the most common vegetables in your juices. Think carrots, celery, spinach, and so forth. Typically, these fibrous pulps are just thrown away, even though they are filled with nutritious fiber. Caitlin decided to rescue the discarded pulp and transform it into one of America's favorite snack foods, a chip or for you Brits out there, a crisp. Today, Pulp Pantry offers four flavors, sea salt, barbecue, salt and vinegar, and jalapeno lime. Each bag is gluten-free, grain-free, and vegan. They capture everything you love about chips, bold flavors, air crispiness, with none of the health or planetary guilt. So on today's episode, we sat down with Caitlin to figure out how she came up with the idea for this revolutionary product how she found a balance between business and social mission, and what she has in stock for Pulp Pantry. Caitlin, it's a pleasure to have you today. Hello. Hello. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We're really excited to have you on the show and to learn more about Pulp Pantry. Yeah. So I guess to start, could you tell us a bit about your background with food and more specifically Food waste, why did you decide to use this and create a business out of it? One like big aha moment that happened for me, you know, as I'm on my own journey, I was, I was vegan and I, you know, was kind of just aligning my lifestyle with the, the values that, um, that I really, that I really had just as an individual. But um, I was working at an urban garden in South Los Angeles and just started to realize how connected really our food system is, not only to environmental health, but also to human health. And the ways that, you know, the food that we eat is such a cultural, you know, has so many cultural implications and um, is really like a conversation piece. I mean, we come together around the dinner table um, and I saw kids coming to school eating Twinkies or Cheetos for breakfast, pizza sauce and French fries were the daily vegetable at lunch. Um, and I was just kind of appalled by the way that, you know, we live in the, we live in California where we grow so much of the, the country's fruits and vegetables. And yet in lots of communities like South Los Angeles, a lot of people don't have access to fresh, healthy food. Um, and so for me, that was kind of a, that was kind of just a stark, 
I guess, um, contrast of like the culture of health and wellness that exists in Los Angeles and yet the haves and have nots that are, you know, that are constantly at odds there. So fast forward, well, this is the long version of the story, but was at a friend's house, happened to see her juice a carrot and was just blown away by the amount of waste produced. And I just thought to myself, oh my goodness, like what if all of the resources that are going to waste in our food system. And of course, now we know 40% of food in the United States goes to waste. What if those resources, um, you know, like fresh fruits and vegetables and fiber, the things that we so badly need in our diet as Americans to better our health could actually be used to create healthy food, healthier food products for all. Um, and so Pulp Pantry really forms kind of at this, this kind of overlap of the foods that are going most to waste, which is fruits and vegetables, and the foods that we also so badly need in our diets, which is also fruits and vegetables. And I just thought that was such a no brainer that these two things could connect and that we could create healthy, affordable options for people by leveraging the byproducts that are um, currently going to waste. So how long did it take you to decide after, your, after seeing your friend juice the carrot to thinking, okay, I'm going to start a company? Um, you know, I, I think that the catalyst for it was actually that I, for a school project had to create my own nonprofit and I was already, you know, this was, I was working out in urban garden through this class and actually working as a teaching assistant there. Um, and I was like, you know, for this, this final project and it culminated in my, my senior year, I was like, I really want to do a, a project that is based on kind of connecting the, the haves and the have-nots, right? Like the resources that are going to waste in our food system with uh, really, really products that could make a difference in especially kids' lives. From there, basically just started working on the idea for that final project. And when we presented the idea, we brought in samples of the first ever like pulp, you know, products made from pulp. I think it was a carrot cake muffin or carrot cake cookies. And my professor was actually the one that really like you know, took me after class and was like, I actually think that there's something here. Like, I really want you to invest in this outside of just this project alone and introduce me to some people who were super influential in um, more in like access to healthy food within the Los Angeles community. So they were working in nonprofits that advocate for healthier options in the city. Um, and then through there met some school food service directors and just started really uncovering all of the challenges that, you know, city, I guess like not city employees, but that school food managers have when trying to source healthier options for kids. Um, and that was really what started the, the whole journey. So Caitlin, how did you go from this class on nonprofits to not only starting a for-profit company, but finding business partners, investors, and raising capital? Because you guys are for-profit, correct? The, the school food service route, spoiler alert, did not go as planned. And we, you know, kind of realized that that wasn't going to be a possibility from the get-go. So yes, we, we are definitely a for-profit, um, you know, impact-oriented business. Yeah. But yeah, I think to answer your question about um, just raising capital, that can be a huge challenge. It's very expensive to run a products-based business. I think, you know, in the beginning, I really saw it alternative forms of capital. We were a part of the Target Incubator, but there were so many amazing grant opportunities for especially female founders. And I mean, there are constantly even more that I'm uncovering. So, you know, that's definitely something where I think like for anyone just starting out, even with an idea, you can really find um, some awesome sources of capital and oftentimes like leaning on, you know, universe, like universities to find that information. So many female entrepreneurs are paying it forward in that way. So I think it is really possible for 
young brands and, and female founders to start to find ways that they can get that initial capital in the door. And it can be really challenging to get a packaged goods brand off the ground. And it is it is expensive, but I think never should anyone be deterred from um, getting launched and getting started because there's always a way to figure it out, I think, and, and find the right partners to, to make it happen. And now, Caitlin, can you just speak a bit about the process? I am an avid smoothie juice maker myself, and I understand that pulp that can be left behind. But how do you take that and transform it into something entirely different? In this case, a chip. Yeah, I mean, that has taken so much work to figure out. We've gone through so many different process changes, like went from, you know, we started out making everything into flowers. So dehydrating the pulp into flowers and making baking mixes and making, you know, baked goods. Then we moved on to dehydrating the actual products themselves. So making raw granolas and raw chips and crackers um, that were made from like a majority of vegetables. I would say like 80% vegetables, but we kind of realized there, there was a very limited market size and, and, and demographic that would be open to eating things that had, um, that kind of a vegetable base, um, as well as raw, you know, raw products were really hard to, it's really hard to find the equipment to scale and takes a long time, obviously to manufacture. So we moved on to baking and we had a baked granola that we, um, manufactured last year, but again, working with fresh ingredients that were then baking, we couldn't find the right manufacturing partners to scale that product lineup either because no one wants to work with fresh ingredients. So it's been a big challenge to find partners that were willing to work with us on, you know, incorporating a fresh ingredient like the the fresh vegetables that we use and turn it into a dry good or a finished product at the end. Um, so, I mean, for us, you know, that's still, we still, you know, say every one of our products is going to have vegetables as the first ingredient. And um, so it's just about, it's just been about finding the right entrepreneurial manufacturing partners who are willing to say, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll work with you to turn these fresh ingredients into um, into chips and into, you know, different product lines. How long did this process take from having the original idea to coming out with a final project, a product? It took four years. It was so, you know, it's, I mean, it, it really has been every step of the way. I think we've had a different, like every single year or year and a half, we've had a different product line because of the learnings that we took from the initial stages. So I would say in total, we've probably gone through about four like major kind of brand shifts where, you know, we started with the baked goods, then we moved on to the baking mixes, then we moved on to the raw granolas and the raw chips, then we moved on to baked granolas, and now we're at, we're now we're at chips, just, you know, packaged chips. And the chips is really the first product that we've been able to find like a way to manufacture um, at the scale that we wanted to, to make it more affordable, to make it more accessible, and to make it something that has some mainstream, um, I think, stickiness because the other products just weren't fulfilling that end mission of really, you know, giving everybody a, a chance to eat more servings of fruits, vegetables, and fiber in their di diet, no matter like, you know, being the kind of healthy, crunchy Erewhon customer or someone who is a Target customer. And Caitlin, I know that fruit produces pulp as well, in addition to vegetables. So I was just wondering, is this an ingredient you will have worked with in the past or maybe something you're thinking about working with in future products? I think, I mean, definitely we used to work with fruits for the granola line. Um, and we, our granolas were made from like beets and carrots and apples. And um, now we've focused more on vegetables, just given that like chips and the savory application. But I, 
I definitely think that fruit is something we would explore again in the future. You know, I've, there has been some trends where I feel like a lot of people are looking to reduce the sugar in their diet. So some green juices and things like that, you know, have that health halo still. And I think um, are still the bulk of some the ingredients that we can collect. So we really honestly have changed the product line to match where suppliers have the most need to. Um, and so just exploring what they have ac- the most excess of so that we can kind of work with them to um, take some of those like larger ingredient byproduct streams off their hands. So you currently have four flavors, sea salt, salt and vinegar, barbecue, and jalapeno lime. Mm-hmm. Which one is your favorite and which one is the best seller? I would say sea salt is the best seller. Um, and it's also my favorite, but that's just because, you know, it, I mean, especially for me, it's kind of the, you get the purest version of, of what the product really is. And I think for anyone who, who, um, you know, likes vegetables and doesn't need the flavor to be masked, which I'm, you know, still, I'm still vegan or veganish, I should say, because I'm, I try not to try not to be too strict with myself and put, you know, put labels on it. But, um, but yeah, I d- definitely with, with the, the sea salt flavor, I think that's kind of the, the best way to just really feel what the chip is actually made of and in and, and the vegetables that are inside. Yeah, no, I think um, I'm usually a salt and vinegar kind of person, but <laughs> plain salted is always just a go-to with any kind of brand. It's just simple and perfect. Exactly. Now, I think it's safe to say that the COVID-19 pandemic has rocked everybody's world in one way or another, but we'd like to ask you, Caitlin, as the owner of a business, has it hurt or helped Pulp Pantry? I think at the beginning, you know, we definitely saw a surge um, in just people who were like, who are panic buying. So, but you know, none of us had any idea what to expect in the months to come. And we had, so in, in the, in the long run, we were truly hurt by it because we had retailers that we were supposed to launch with this summer that the timeline just got pushed back a lot. And I actually had moved back home and moved out of my place in LA just to save money and kind of like stay close to the, close to the ground because it was really scary there for a while. I think June, you know, pretty much May through August were just really challenging months where I felt like demand was a lot slower. Of course, we're also boycotting Facebook and Instagram ads. And so there was, there were really limited ways of bringing customers to our site and we didn't have, you know, extremely high traffic coming through our online site either. So we were really dependent on our retail partners and a lot of people were not open at this and, and, you know, people weren't shopping at the same extent that they had been in March and April. So that was a really big challenge. And, um, but, you know, I did use that time to actually read more about the landscape of food waste during coronavirus and just understanding where all the holes were in our, in our food system, because a lot of food was going to waste on farms and a lot of farmers didn't have restaurants or distributors picking up from them anymore. So we had a huge surge in food, in food waste. We had a huge surge in just I think like, you know, with farmers who um, suddenly found themselves unemployed or out of really the revenue that they were expecting from maybe their restaurant customers. So it really became actually a moment of learning for me and onboarding new suppliers so that when we, now that we're launching in new, um, new stores, we had already kind of explored a gamut of, of additional suppliers that we wanted to bring on just to bring more flexibility and hopefully impact into our own supply chain as well. So I think it was overall like a positive experience from that and just kind of reorganizing a bit, but yeah, it has been challenging for everyone. And 
oh goodness, like I know that it's still going to be a few more months of, of that kind of, that kind of, um, you know, those, those kinds of challenges as well. So I just, you know, I hope with upcoming retail launches that, you know, we can really help our, our retail partners bring more, um, bring different customers into the store. But also I think, you know, that, that hopefully will be a big saving grace for us as well. And Caitlin, you mentioned that you all are boycotting Facebook and Instagram. And that is so cool. We've never heard of a brand doing that. So could you just explain what drove that decision? It's really sucks because it is kind of a necessary evil, but I just feel like, you know, we've, we've all kind of seen that there are a lot of dark sides to, to those platforms as well. And especially when you're, I think, a mission-oriented brand, it oftentimes becomes like a conversation of really where are our dollars being invested in, when it comes to like getting the brand name out there. And so, you know, I still haven't figured out like how to reinvest those marketing dollars somewhere else and in, in that will make as big of an impact. And I'm not going to say that, you know, we won't ever advertise on there again, because I'm sure there will come a time where we, you know, the tools that are offered through those channels become necessary, but it has been kind of nice to just explore, like, what would it look like to actually change some of the, the marketing investment and marketing dollars to, um, you know, maybe platforms that will have more impact. And I think even for us, like launching on Thrive Market is huge because Thrive Market has so many amazing social, um, I would say like social impact initiatives within built within their model. So even investing on their platform instead and driving sales directly on Thrive, but also driving awareness through Thrive, that's a, one place that I definitely want to um, advertise a bit more. And then working with directly with our retail partners, like promotions through Whole Foods and shelf, like finding different ways that we can kind of um, drive engagement on shelf. So I think we have a good amount of things to focus on in the near term, but, and hopefully we can find, you know, the next big platform that has, um, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't kind of have that, I guess, negative halo that, um, or negative, you know, the negative sides that Facebook and Instagram have. And then we saw that you are a member of the Upcycled Food Association. So mm. we're just wondering if you could discuss a little bit about what upcycling is, because this is a vocabulary word that so many people still don't know what it is and yeah. what it is. Yeah, I think, you know, upcycling is basically turning a product that would otherwise go to waste. So something that might be as a byproduct or, um, you know, I would consider it like a neglected resource basically and finding a greater value for it. So, um, basically you're taking something that otherwise would be looked over and making a new product or finding a new use to increase the value of that byproduct. So if you think about like in our case, using vegetable fiber as our inputs, the vegetable fiber is, you know, kind of this like castaway ingredient from the juicing process. But for us, it becomes the, the pinnacle of, of another product and it becomes like, it gets a new life in that sense. And so I think upcycling is all about finding that new, that new value or uncovering the value in um, things that would otherwise be considered waste. And I love the, the work that the Upcycled Food Association is doing to really center the messaging around around what upcycling is and why it's important in today's world. I think that upcycling will always maybe, maybe not always, but still has a negative consumer impact like people or negative consumer connotation. A lot of people think about it as recycling. That's gross. I don't really, you know, I don't really like that. So um, we, we definitely still have a lot of work to do in order to, you know, talk to people about what upcycling is and why it's important. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of how we're like at least centering um, centering the word and, and hopefully centering some of the ingredients that other brands are using as well in 
you know, getting away from the ick factor, but just really seeing it as a, as a resource that has a value add. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. And so has, how has joining the Upcycled Association helped your brand or rather what does this community of like-minded brands mean to you? Mm-hmm. Do you have to worry about competition over resources such as sourcing pulp? Mm, not really. I mean, we, you know, I think that there's so few brands in the space still that really it is like a really collaborative, um, it's a collaborative space. And I'm always willing to talk to other brands about our sourcing models and share best practices because a lot of us are doing things that are completely new and novel. And so we're having to develop our own sourcing models and supply chain. Um, I think the biggest value add has really been, yeah, connecting to other brands and just kind of having a community of, of um, people that you can go to for questions and, and just really like specifically driving the whole industry forward through sharing best practices. Awesome. Um, and then Caitlin, this is our last question, but it's our favorite one to ask every single episode. So if you could offer one piece of advice to young entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in the food space or otherwise, what would it be? I would say, I mean, you know, surround yourself with really amazing, smart people and just go for it. I mean, you know, find your tribe of mentors. If it has to be podcasts, that's fine. You know, I love to look at, I'm on a masterclass now and just watching like the masterclasses and and the, the really the people that I admire the most to get some inspiration. But ultimately it's just, you know, getting yourself out there. It's the best learning experience ever have the attitude that, you know, you're willing to take risks and take chances. Don't be afraid to fail. You might be surprised by your resilience and your ability to get back up again. Um, so I say, I would say like the best advice I can give anyone is just to, you know, put in those, those daily actions that move you in the right direction. Um, you don't have to jump into something full time, but I think there's so many ways nowadays to test an idea on a small scale and keep on growing and iterating until you kind of reach that critical mass to really jump into it full time. So um, I, I just hope that anyone has, that has that entrepreneurial itch um, doesn't wait to, you know, doesn't wait for a good excuse to get started, but really kind of confronts any fears or anything like that just to, to jump in right away and, and kind of explore the curiosities. And you've enjoyed the process? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm so lucky and grateful that I somehow ended up on this path. It was definitely not expected. It was definitely not, you know, something where I told myself the story of wanting to be an entrepreneur and then didn't think that that was something that was going to be in my, in my, you know, career path. But, um, I, it's been the best learning experience, like better than, you know, any, any kind of schooling could ever have taught me. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to have, to keep on going down the, the road. Caitlin, we cannot thank you enough for joining us today. If you'd like to try Pulp Pantry for yourself, please head to their website to order directly to your door or to find a retailer near you. Until next time, happy eating.